Hello, friends and enemies. Welcome back to another episode of Theology in the Raw. My guest today is Dr. Vincent Bacot, who is a professor of theology, director of the Center for Applied Christian Ethics at Wheaton College, where he's been since the year 2000. Uh, Dr. Bacot is an accomplished um, theologian and ethicist uh, writer. He's published The Political Disciple, a, public theo- uh, a Theology of Public Life, and the spirit in public theology appropriating the legacy of Abraham Kuyper. He's contributed to various books, uh, including Black Scholars in White Spaces, Aliens in the Promised Land, Why Minority Leadership is Overlooked in White Christian Churches and Institutions. And, oh, there's another one here that's not listed in my notes, but he's written um, uh, several other books, many scholarly articles, and is somebody who I've known from a distance and um, not known him, but just known of him. He's a well-known name in evangelical scholarship, and I'm so excited that he agreed to come on the show to talk about what it is to be a Christian disciple in our public arena, how to maintain our allegiance to the kingdom of God while participating in um, uh, in in being an agent of justice in society. So please welcome to the show, for the first time, the one and only Dr. Vincent Bickham. All right, I'm here with uh, Dr. Uh, Vince or Vin- Vincent uh, Bacot is your last name, but I didn't I didn't yeah. clarify. Would you prefer Vince or Vincent? Uh, both are fine. Okay, I'll go with Vince. I'll go with Vince. Um, thanks so much for being on the podcast. I mean, you, you're a, an established theologian, ethicist, public theologian. Um, for people who have been in evangelical scholarship circles, your name's very well known. Um, so it's an honor for you to be on the podcast. Thanks for taking the time to, to do this. I appreciate participating. And I mean, so you have, you have, I mean, written on some pretty uh, important would be an understatement (laughs) themes in Christianity involving politics and race and evangelicalism and white spaces with minority leaders and all these things. So we have so much to talk about, but why why don't you give people a quick background of of who you are, how you got into uh, wanting to be a Christian scholar? Oh, <laughs> so uh, I'm in my 23rd year at Wheaton College. I'm a professor of theology and director of our Center for Applied Christian Ethics. I've been the director of the Center for Applied Christian Ethics since 2007. Started here in January of 2000, so I'm on actual calendar years. Um, my PhD is from Drew University in Madison, New Jersey. Undergrad, I went to the Citadel, the Military College of South Carolina. I was a mm-hmm. biology major there. I started there uh, planning to be a veterinarian, but now I teach theology for a living. Um and so, you know, how did all this happen? Um, basically, I mean, if I, if I look back over my life, there are probably like signposts that maybe this was the direction even when I was 12 or 13 years old. Yeah. But it wasn't until the middle of my time in college when I had a sense about what I now call uh, some call to what I call a semblance of full-time Christian service, which at that time only meant to me being a pastor. I didn't know that it was okay to be a professor because I was in a very practically oriented parachurch ministry. And at least my interpretation of the ways that they talked about people uh, like me was um, read those people, but don't be those people. (laughs) And um, but so it wasn't really until I got to Trinity where I discovered that I was one of them. Uh, the big catalyst for that was someone saying, Vince, a guy like you ought to get a PhD. And that really set me on the path towards doing it. In terms of my particular interest in various things, uh, as I say in my political disciple book, really what oriented me towards matters public was rock and roll uh, because of being the guy in our Bible study that was listening to Iron Maiden and other bands. And You like uh, Iron Maiden? I grew up with great. Iron Maiden. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, it, People weren't exactly enamored of uh, the fact that, you know, I had a cassette of their Peace of Mind album uh, when I was oh, that's in a great the 80s, album. but yeah. uh, it's a great album. Uh, but um, uh, I had an intuition that Christians could appreciate things outside the church, uh, and but I didn't have any theological language for that. didn't really get yeah. that theological language until I was in seminary, honestly. Hmm. And whether it was, you know, matters of culture like rock and roll or whether, it, it, you know, politics and race and things like that, the the concern about a faith that can go into public spaces, 
and or, or faith that orients people into public spaces was something that was very important to me. Um, I think th- there was also certainly when, you know, I was listening to a lot of Christian radio uh, in the time between seminary and, mm-hmm. I'm sorry, between undergrad and seminary. I lived in Memphis, Tennessee for three years between them. And, uh, you know, I liked a lot of what I was hearing, but it, it was always interesting to me that there wasn't a whole lot said about race or even right. that you could make a theological case for why people should care about it. Now I think, well, it's not really that hard of a case to make, but right. but I d- didn't understand that then. And I would say that, um, you know, politics in general, questions of race in particular, not only questions of race, but th- those things were important to me. Uh, so how do you have this kind of holistic faith? That's why I've always sort of been inclined towards the linkage between theology and ethics. To me, it's a mistake anyway that that people don't, that our theology doesn't automatically open up the path toward our ethics. That we have this bifurcation between theology and ethics. Right. But the fact of the matter is, is that um, you know seminary curricula kind of inhabit that that bifurcation, and I think. A lot of times the way that many Christians go about their ethics is really more of an ad hoc approach to how they live their Christian life. It isn't because I believe these certain things, these things orient me to at least give me a disposition towards discerning how to make ethical choices. So so that's been very important to me to to, to have that connection, because, you know, to put it, you know, really basically— when Jesus says, follow me, of course he means believe in me, but he doesn't mean just just believe in me in terms of a set of abstractions, but really there's the whole question of how it actually following me. Yeah. So there's something about living your life, not just saying the right things. So getting doctrine right, massively important to me, but getting doctrine right isn't just to be good about talking about stuff. It's about being able to mm-hmm. live out those doctrines. Can you really quick, as an ethicist, because some a lot of not a lot, maybe some, maybe a lot. A lay Christians don't really know kind of the various Christian views on ethics, whether it's you know yeah. de- deontological, virtue ethics, or an integrated right. approach. Can right. you give us just a really quick maybe lay of the land and where you sure. fall? Sure. sure, I'd say the 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 simplest way to put it is that a lot of times when people are talking about Christian ethics, the question is: Is it about commands that we're right. supposed to follow? Uh, is it about consequences that are the result? of your actions or is it about the character the kind of person that you have right so what people call deontological ethics are about a a command theory of ethics uh the consequentialist or teleological ethics is what happens you know what's the result or what's the trajectory of our decisions where is it going what's ultimate what's its ultimate purpose uh and result and then what they call virtue ethics is about the kind of people that we are. It's about, the, it's about who you are in mm-hmm. a certain situation rather than just whether you're obeying a command uh, or okay. thinking about the, 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 the end. Those, those are big picture things. Sure. Um, I'm a very synthetic thinker, so uh, I'd rather not choose between the three, honestly. Yeah, they don't uh, seem because, mutually exclusive. I mean, yeah, yeah. I, I think sometimes when people want magnifying one over the other, it can be because of, of limitations that they can see with only going with one dimension or the other. But if we're thinking about it from a Christian point of view, there there are things we are told that have to do with uh, w- why do it? Because God said do it, that's why. <laughs> it's a command. Yeah. Uh, sometimes why, why do things because of the trajectory, because of where it's going? And certainly God cares about our character. Sure, sure. So, um, so, so, so we, so you, you, it needs to be a sort of thread of all those things. Right, right. Would you say that? that this is actually a really live question I've had asked me a, a lot: is does God always reveal? Does He have to reveal like a moral rationale for a certain command? And I don't want to get sidetracked on sexuality debates, but that's typically mm-hmm. where it comes up. What's the reason why God would define marriage this way? Okay, I can get it from Scripture. Mm-hmm. God said it. So is it just God said it? I believe it, or is there a moral rationale? Mm-hmm. And with certain things like idolatry or drunkenness or adultery, are kind of really easy to see mm-hmm. that these aren't mm-hmm. just morally wrong. These are harmful to the person and society. Sure. With other sure. I, the classic example in my mind is two Christians get married, they're married five years, they don't have any kids, and they just fall out mm-hmm. of love. Like, they're just fighting all the time, and they're just, like, pushing right. each other away from Jesus, and it just makes more sense mm-hmm. for them to get divorced. Mm-hmm. And yet, 
my deontological side mm-hmm. comes in and says, I don't have a verse that would say there's grounds for divorce right. here, even though right. practically I can make a good case for it, you know? Um, sure. It does. So the, back to the question, do you feel like you can always find some moral rationale for how we are to live or is it less clear in uh, some instances? Well, in the same way that God doesn't tell us everything, I think that sometimes God says, you're just going to have to trust me on this one. Yeah. Uh, I do think in the long run, when it comes to things that God commands us to do, if you look at the church, so this is more of a consequentialism type of thing, I think. Um, if you look at the long run and people are being completely honest, I think we see that the reasons reveal themselves Okay. over time. Uh, now, that doesn't mean that when it comes to prohibitions about divorce, okay, uh, if it's not adultery, then that then just stick it out. Because the question is, you know, with that, in the example that you have, a couple just falls out of love. Well, what I want to know is, well, how did that happen? What was going on? Mm-hmm. What's actually happening in the relationship and that that led to that, to get to the place where there's so much dissonance? I mean, is it a relationship that became abusive? Is it a relationship that became, you know, all these different ways where there was a violation of neighbor love because mm-hmm. your spouse is your closest neighbor? Um, and, and, and so are there things that are happening that are actually are violations of, of, of things, uh, and things that perhaps are putting people in certain kinds of danger or maybe not, I mean, not necessarily somebody holding a knife to their throat, but there are other ways that, uh, you know, something murderous perhaps is happening. Uh, so I, so I think, I think, uh, that that sometimes, and this is a, a challenge for evangelicals to begin with. Because we value the word of God, or we say we do, let's put it that way, because I don't think people are consistent <laughs> about it, uh, be, we, be, at least because we purportedly care about everything that the Bible says, um, we think that when it comes to moral decisions, that there ought to be just a verse that tells us what to do. But the fact of the matter is that that's just not the case. Uh, and I mean, should you, should you, uh, build nuclear weapons, and should you drop them on your enemies uh, if uh, that will prevent them from killing other people? Yeah. Well, uh, we don't have a specific verse about the construction and use of nuclear weapons. So the fact that we have questions that emerge in, in our context we, I think we had to find out from Scripture, and, 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 and again, not just specific verses, but are we being told things about consequences? Are we being told things uh, about character that are giving us a trajectory uh, upon which to, to sort of follow? And in following that trajectory, does that give us wisdom about you okay. know, what, what's at least the better choice to make? Because right. it's not always clear what the better choice is. That is an interesting one. I mean, I remember wrestling with this. I taught, I mean, I'm not an ethicist, but I taught undergrad, an undergrad class on ethics many years ago. And one of the things we wrestled with was, you know, uh, just war theory. And, yeah. and the question always comes up, you know, the dropping the two bombs on Japan during World War II, you know, arguably saved a ton of lives. And yet you also mm-hmm. violated, is an understatement, a main principle of just war theory where you don't nuke civilians right i mean um so is there like a lesser two evils here do do you have in your way of thinking ethically do you have space for a a choice between the lesser of two evils because i know some people say that's not that's never actually a thing Mm -hmm. um i well here's what i think it comes down to is that um we have to make prudential judgments about something and in Mm -hmm. making those prudential judgments um we are doing the hopefully the best we can uh, and we are entrusting ourselves to God and make that, that, that we're, we're having the wisdom to make those choices because mm-hmm. it's not always crystal clear about whether or not to, to make those choices. Yeah. Because, you know, in World War II, um, I mean, that's a really, really hard situation. Yeah, yeah. Which doesn't mean that they should have dropped bombs on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. That's not my point. Yeah. Uh, but it's not as if that was, um, especially in hindsight, well, it was just an easy choice for them to make to 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 put a wrap on this, right? Yeah. Um, I imagine that they they agonized about that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
that one's tough too, because I think in Nagasaki at that time, there was a pretty large Christian, Catholic Christian population. I think it was Nagasaki, 20% or something, or like million. Like, so even as a Christian, mm-hmm. if you think like just on the political realm, should this nation have done this to this nation? Okay, we can kind of right. sort through that. But as a Christian, right. should we nuke other believers <laughs> like that? Case? Yeah, sure. Exactly. <laughs> it's a tough case, man. It, I don't it's, know. It's really hard. I'd lean really towards hard. no, but um, I, I want to yeah. talk about, so I mean, you've written on race, you've written on politics. Can we, let, let's start with your 2015 book, uh, A Political Disciple, um, mm-hmm. A Theology of Public Life. And I love what you, you how would you say, um, the, the, the description, at least in the website, here, helping Christians navigate, I love this phrase, relative allegiance to a nation and or a political party and ultimate allegiance to Christ. Um, yeah. I have so many questions about that. Um, one of my questions is, you, you wrote that book five, six, seven years ago. Have, mm-hmm. have, if you were to rewrite it, what would that look like in light of the last few years, especially? Um, <laughs> would it change or maybe new illustrations? But I'll, maybe maybe start with give us a gist of what's your kind of main thing you're trying to accomplish in that book. Uh, the main thing really is the theology and ethics thing that that our beliefs orient us towards living in certain ways. So it's a holistic faith and a holistic faith that's oriented toward the public. It isn't just about internal being internally pious people, but people whose lives are publicly express uh, their faith, hopefully in a uh, thoroughgoing way, mm-hmm. uh, and trying to learn and grow in that way. So that so that part of our discipleship includes the fact that we participate in God's world, and, and that we don't participate in God's world in ways where we naively think that we see everything with crystal clarity. As I always like to say, if Paul said he sees through a glass darkly. I'm not going to start talking about this. Well, that was for Paul. I see quite clearly um, <laughs> that that's a bad idea. So uh, so a, a humility, uh, but a humility that tempers uh, how much uh, certainty we have about you know, every choice that we're making or, or, or every thing that we're saying about a policy or something. So I, I think that's part of the kind of thing I'm encouraging. Specific to your question about uh, relative allegiance, well, to me, that that just goes back to being, you know, a person's in the United States of America. There are ways that people have um, called us a Christian nation. And people need to understand, if you read, you know, Martin Luther King, I mean, he said that we we're a Christian nation. So hmm. way before people are getting thinking about certain forms of current nationalism, if you will, a lot of people have thought, well, we are in a way a Christian nation, although imperfectly so. Um, I think it's just very important to understand that, and I don't think I quite put it this way in the book, but um, the Bible says nothing about Western Hemisphere countries. Hmm. And since it does say nothing about it, except for all the earth or all the nations, mm-hmm. anything that we think about our relative importance in terms of God's narrative of salvation history, we are basically making things up, if that's what we're thinking. Uh, so the point isn't that God can't use people, that God doesn't, that in a country where we have a unique level of, of political agency that most people haven't had in world history, that there isn't something there that is an opportunity. There absolutely is that opportunity. But the idea that, as you know, uh, to put it one way, uh, that George Washington's real name was, you know, Moses reincarnated or something, <laughs> uh, that, that th- this is just making things up. And that for all the, the unique ways that the United States may be, you know, that, that Chesterton quote, a nation with the soul of the church, no, that means that we're another Israel, right? So, um, so we need to re- so we need to understand. Yes, we have a, lo- a lot of Judeo-Christian, uh, you know, thinking in our DNA, but um, that means those are good influences. That obviously our history shows that we haven't always been good about practicing. Uh, so, we're, we're we're an imperfect nation with certain opportunities, but um, no allegiance to any place can ever be greater than our allegiance to God. Otherwise you're trafficking in idolatry. And can you, how, how has that been going for the church in the last couple of years? Like uh, you've been around longer than I have. Have you seen that misplaced allegiance um, to a certain 
perhaps political identity or even or even a certain just social way of thinking mm-hmm. um has that been exacerbated in in the last couple of years more than before or has it always been kind of this much of an issue I mean, I think it's fair when people are talking about certain ways that there have been forms of nationalism where, where people who don't even go to church call themselves evangelicals um, and who have this sense of thinking that we really are a, a kind of chosen nation. But there are people who have been talking about sort of the Christian character of the United States for much longer than that. So that's not new. I think it's just intensified in certain ways. But here's the interesting thing that I think we have to think about, regardless of a person's political party or, um, you know, the, the, the policies about which they are concerned and the, the, the things that they're optimistic about with the country and the things that they're fearful about. And that would be that just being in the United States, no matter wh- where you land, you're in a country where so much of our rhetoric inclines us to think that because we're in the United States of America, mm-hmm. we ought to have a certain set of expectations about the possibilities for our lives. And, and people are very frustrated about things that get in the way mm-hmm. of them pursuing those possibilities. Now, that's whether you're from the right or from the left. Mm-hmm. You just have to choose who you're going to blame. <laughs> and who, who's getting in the way of this. Yeah. And my point being that I think there's a way in which a lot of people in the United States of America, they want desperately what is the promise that they're handed about what you, know, what you, what you can do in America. You, you, yeah. you can own the land of opportunity. Um, and because people think I ought to be able to have that, I think sometimes there's this way of thinking about the country, even people that criticize it. So, yeah, but you're criticizing it because you're upset about not being able to have what it said you should have. Not just because it's always antagonized people being able to have that. It's because you're saying, well, if we're really going to live up to these documents, then we ought to be able to have it. So it's not that people don't want those things. Right. Right. They want those things. They're frustrated that people are getting in the way of them having those things. Yeah. And so, and again, so which people are stopping you? So, I mean, is it, you know, people who are more right-leaning? Is it people who are more left-leaning? Is it people who are apathetic? Whatever it is. Mm-hmm. Um, is it, you know, is it China? You know, is it, it used to be Russia, uh, <laughs> et cetera. Um, so my point being that there's something about just inhabiting the United States that creates this sense that um, really, if I just use my agency properly, I get to craft my own personal eschatological reality. Mm. And if something's getting in the way of me doing that, then um, I should be upset about that Mm. because Mm -hmm. we're a country of rights. Mm. And that's my right. Now, who's getting in the way of my rights here? Or who's stealing that? Or who's trying to change our country so I can't pursue those rights? Right, yeah. It's it's hard, like... And as, as I've journeyed in... You know the kind of who wrote the book on Christ and culture with the kind of five different postures. Niebuhr. Yeah, yeah, yeah. H. Richard Niebuhr. Was yes, that? Yes. H. Richard Niebuhr. The, the, Richard, the, not Reinhold, yeah. right? The New York, yeah. Right. Exactly. Uh, Reinhold was arguably more popular than than, than right. Richard, but, but Richard wrote uh, Christ and culture. So I, as I've thought through that paradigm over the last twenty years or so, not, not maybe not explicitly, but more just kind of using those categories, I have lean. I feel like lean more to what would might be more of a Mennonite kind of strong separation. Mm-hmm. Not, not, not mm-hmm. in the way that the religious right or conservative, more fundamentalist evangelicals do, because I think they fall into this weird patriotism. That's the opposite of what I'm wanting to do. Um, mm-hmm. But right. that it does make like, I, you know, I often use the phrase, I'm an exile living in Babylon. America's Babylon. Mm-hmm. I'm an exile. I'm called to be a good citizen, but my allegiance mm-hmm. is fundamentally not here at the same time. I do think Christians are called to be an agent of justice in the world. Um, and, you know, King overturning unjust laws was, I think, an outflow of his Christian faith, and rightly so, p- partly at least. Um, and we should follow in suit. At the, here's where I get nervous, though. Like, I just get more and more skeptical about 
about aligning myself with a certain political tribe in as a means to accomplish this. And this is, I, I don't know, like, because people would say, no, you, if you vote for this leader or not that leader, whatever, and I don't even care which one you put in the blank there, you mm. aren't actually achieving, like this vote is a mm. more just vote. And I don't know, I'm just maybe more, I don't know. Like I, I've, I, I just don't, I'm not convinced that's really healthy. Can you ha- disciple sure. me here, Vince? Cause it, ah. is, like, what, <laughs> it, it, and one more thing, like I, I'm, and this is something I've noticed in the last <laughs> couple of years, especially, but like when you even have a little bit of allegiance, lowercase a allegiance to one tribe, if you listen to the rhetoric to be a member of that tribe means the other tribe is your enemy. And man, that's so, once you start absorbing that, I think, I I just think that that can be destructive to Christian discipleship because now half the church is now your enemy because they're in a different Babylonian tribe. And so I don't know, I'm I'm wrestling with what are the, what's the role of a justice seeking Christian with his relationship with the powers of the state. Yeah. (laughs) You got a clapper? Uh, (laughs) His lights just went out. (laughs) You know, if I stand still long enough, it just, the lights just go out. Yeah. yeah. Um, so I'll like move around like I'm, like I'm grooving to my, my electric bass is over there. So, you know, pretend I'm, you know. So you're a musician so I, too. You're not just a fan. We, we got to save uh, a little bit of space. I, I play to... at electric bass is what I like to say. I mean, I'm looking at a, a picture of my friend, John Patitucci right here. So, you know, John's, John's, uh, you know, way more accomplished, right? <laughs> you know, so, so I always think, you know, well, no, you're a hack bassist is what you are. But, um, but I think the fact is that depending upon where you are, and a lot of times depending upon circumstances, you may at times feel more like an Anabaptistic Mennonite type of posture where you're thinking about that what you do models to the public an alternate allegiance and yeah. participation in the community that models that in their life together. Other times, at least in the United States, because of the kind of agency that we have, mm-hmm. where at least in theory, any boy and girl in elementary school right now could one day be president of the United States of America, because of that possibility, and because all politics is local, all that type of stuff, mm-hmm. you can show up and um, and be constructive in, in, in having a voice, uh, or you can run for office yourself, or you can at least write your congressperson. The, the fact that our elections, generally speaking, are, are pretty are pretty reliable. You know, we're, we're, it's not like <laughs> what I heard about in Nigeria once where people couldn't even get to the polls until like an hour before they closed because people were stopping them, all this kind of stuff. Um, and of course, Nigeria is just one example. I mean, it's happened in yeah. so many countries. But uh, the point being that the agency that we have creates opportunities, and I'll put it this way, to think about how we contribute to neighbor love being expressed through things like public policy. In which case, I have to think about, well, to what degree, again, it may just be voting, but but it may be writing a a congressperson. It might be really thinking about a particular issue and Mm -hmm. and bringing it to the mayor or or your town council or whatever. Um, But there's there's the possibility to think about how you can actually actively, in my view, as a response to, uh, at, at the least, just thinking about loving your neighbor. At the most, thinking about you know, so this cultural mandate language of, mm-hmm. you know, ever since whether it's Psalm eight that God yeah. put humans over the creation, or whether it's Genesis one twenty six and twenty eight that that God gave us dominion. Dominion not meaning tyranny. Dominion meaning really stewardship because it's God's world. Mm-hmm. So we're responsible to God. So whatever we do, it, it's the, a, a reign under being under the reign of another. So uh, that stewardly opportunity in terms of public life is possible here. But I think this is part of the problem. Sometimes the ways people talk about that is as if they think that any public policy is going to deliver completely whatever they care about. Mm-hmm. That's misunderstanding the world in which we live. One, how does anybody see clearly enough about the public policy that's going to deliver the, the full realization of the kingdom of God about anything? And then second, um, w- what do we know about the world that we inhabit? Oh, wait, 
it's a world where we're still waiting for Jesus to come back, even though we're between, mm-hmm. you know, uh, Easter and, and, and the second advent. Uh, we are waiting for God to set everything right, to, to bring full shalom to, to his world. So while we're waiting, it's very clear to us that we're in a world where there are things that will oppose God in his ways. Mm-hmm. And so we shouldn't be surprised that even the best argued, most um, sensitively <laughs> negotiated policy, um, it's just not going to work out super smoothly. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And and so you know when people say things like you know this is a vote for justice etc it's like well that's great rhetoric but let's think about the fact that most of the people that you vote for deliver a little of, yeah. of what they said. Yeah. Um, recently we had an event on campus. I had the privilege of co-moderating a conversation with Senator Ben Sass of Nebraska mm, yeah. and former Governor Bill Haslam of uh, Tennessee. It's great event. The way Sa- Ben Sass put it was. He says we shouldn't be overly enthusiastic about politics. We should have like one cheer instead of three cheers for politics is what he says. And so the point is that, yes, that there are certain things that can be done through politics. But the idea that everything is getting done through politics is misunderstanding how things work in the world. Yeah. And even if you think about the phrase, people say, you know, politics is downstream from culture. Yeah. What kind of cultural formation are we doing with the, with the things that we are doing in society and where people who have influence with to become movers and shakers or to influence movers and shakers? How are people helping to inform the choices that get made, uh, inform things like, say, a corporate culture, et cetera? How are those things happening in ways that can be facilitating good? Yeah. So I think a lot of Christians aren't being told in their discipleship that part of their discipleship is being you know, looking for opportunities, and everybody doesn't have them, but some people do, to be very culturally formative because of being in places of influence mm-hmm. where things that happen, you know, that may seem to be inconsequential now, you know, 20 years from now, they may be playing a role in why people are thinking about addressing certain things in terms yeah. of public policy, but because yeah. of other things that have been put into place in terms of the culture. Okay. So so I think we, we, we do need to think about that agency, but it has to be done with humility. It has to be done with an understanding that we're not the only people in the world, that people see things different from us, and that uh, and that whatever we're doing, I mean, we're not fully establishing the kingdom of God. Right. I, I know some people like to use bring in the kingdom language, establish yeah. the kingdom language. I like witnessing to the kingdom language. Witnessing uh-huh. to doesn't just mean I model that other people see, but that even things that I might produce uh-huh. that get put into the world, so to speak, they are at best, you know, a vague signpost of what is coming. Oh, that's good. I like that. I like that language better. Yeah. Yeah. Bringing in the kingdom. I get the idea and the motivation. It's just never, it, it does kind of reveal a certain, I don't know, theological commitment too. Um, and a certain level of disappointment when these values that we want to see brought in are constantly not really truly fully being right embodied. Right. Um, right. Here, well, and, and I think the other problem is the, is, um, and I think there are a lot of people with integrity. They they want these things to happen. But um, my advocacy for X, Y, or Z also has to be tempered by the fact of my own imperfections mm-hmm. and ongoing need for further sanctification in my entire person, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. which means I need to always be thinking about, um, hey, I'm proposing this, but 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 why am I proposing this? Yeah. And who else am I thinking about besides just a particular constituency? Am I thinking about really trying to do something for the common good or am I only thinking about it for, you know, a, a particular yeah. group of people? I have a question. I'm, I'm trying to figure out even how to word it. So it might come out a little longer than I, I, than I intended. But so so I, I but my answer was really long. So that's right. <laughs> <laughs> um, and it's going to end up having a racial component to it um, just to prepare you um okay so so i i've i yeah more of a and about this mennonite kind of and, and not like i don't know it's like that's kind of where i'm at thinking through but i know there's blind spots and so when, when people say yeah but we need to be an agent for justice i'm like yeah absolutely but can we do that as the church as a christian do we need to go through i'll say you know babylonian means as if people in political <laughs> power care about anything other than staying in power. And maybe that's my 
my cynicism, but I'm like, I, I don't know. Like, Sorry, it seems I'm like still laughing at Babylonian memes, but yeah, but <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, really, like, I vote for justice. I'm like, you really think that candidate, not this, really cares about you? You don't think they care primarily and ultimately about staying in power, achieving power, and they will create whatever narrative and they will spin whatever it is to stay in power. You may resonate with the means they're doing to stay in power and who they're speaking to and appealing to. Okay, I get it, but don't think this is your messiah on any level um so that's my cynicism but at the same time i you know i want to be an agent of justice but do we have to <laughs> yeah you use babylonian means to do that but i here's my, the racial component the pushback i get which is i think really good and something I've, it's it's been sitting with me as they say well preston you have the white privilege of being able to say that there's a reason why most black church and churches and black christians in particular um are really invested in, in politics and that's a big deal and social involvement is is not kind of some distant thing they can kind of choose or not choose because they haven't had the privilege of living as a white man in america and i'm like man that's a great i'm like man i that is a huge blind spot i need to think through um can you would love to hear your thoughts on kind of sure. my convoluted question <laughs> um well first i would say even in, well even in african-american churches and other uh minority uh communities of faith, I think even there, you'll have people that are more political and people that are less political. There are a lot of, you know, minority churches where people are like, look, yes, we care about that. We should pray about that. But we're, but it's not going to be showing up in our sermons the way that in some other churches, it's showing up very much. That When you're talking about what God is doing, what God is doing is about, yes, it's about saving people, but it's really about changing the world huh. uh, and, and changing certain if you will, uh, exilic circumstances. Um, so, so I just want to note that just for, 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 to, to complexify that, 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 because I think a lot of people think, oh, black church, if I go to a black church, everybody could talk about politics. Well, it depends. You might go to one and they say nothing about it. <laughs> uh, so, um, so I think, um, the fact is that change happens lots of ways. And I do think because of the way that things have worked out in a racialized fashion in the world, in, in, well, not just in America, but in the world, um, that, that, you know, pulling public policies in place has been part of that. I mean, Jim Crow is a public policy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, slavery, you know, that was the law. Sure. Um, so we need political dimensions to attend to those things mm -hmm. having the wisdom to do that it's very very hard because there are lots of factors that are involved in what makes possible the flourishing of people that in terms of the history of the country have not had um the same access and opportunities mm -hmm. um so I heard a, a judge the other day talking on, on the radio about the fact is that, you know, there are still places where the effects of redlining exist. Right. Yeah. And there's disinvestment in um, neighborhoods and or parts of cities. So, well, how do you facilitate that? Hmm. Right. Um, how do you address public education, which isn't just a minority problem. It's also a massively a class problem. Yeah. Um, so there has to be the public policy dimension of that. Hmm. Now that said, I don't think everybody needs to be pressing for transformation through the same means as if everybody um, cares about all the same issues the exact same way. There's a lot of issues to care about. Yeah. yeah. Even a person says addressing some political realities. Well, which ones? Hmm. Because on the one hand, you know, now there's going to be this case uh, brought for the Supreme Court, initially brought by, uh, well, I think the guy is white who's bringing it, but the plaintiffs are Asian, uh, about, Asia, you know, not enough about Asian students being limited in their admissions to places like Harvard, yeah. et cetera. Yeah, I heard about this. Um, and the point, though, is that um, 
when people have tried to attend to the question of race, they want, you know, like apparently you know, Judge, Judge Roberts has said, the way you stop discriminating on race is you stop discriminating by race. Um, I always like to say, you mean because, of course, the effects of discriminating by race for most of the history of this country just stop when we stop, <laughs> is what you mean. Um, we, we want to get to the place where um, the country just functions in a way where, it, you know, there's the opportunity for people to pursue mm-hmm. trajectories towards flourishing, right? Because mm-hmm. you can't make people, I mean, even if people know what equal opportunity is when they see one, which you cannot assume, um, and then know what to do with an equal opportunity when they see it, which you also cannot assume, um, you, there are people who could have all that in front of them and they go, yeah, I'm going on vacation. I'm going to go do something else. I don't want to do that. So you can't, you can't, you can't, there are always going to be people who choose not to take advantage of opportunities. Yeah. So you can't guarantee that people are going to always make choices, right? But you can facilitate, I think, some things through public policy to help people to have better possibilities to have choices to be able to recognize those choices, you know, because it takes an education to see those things, uh, and to be able to um, have uh, some people. I mean, there are all kinds of supports that some people have in place that are just taken for granted that enable them to to see an opportunity and then do something with that opportunity. Yeah. There may be people who can see it, but they don't have those other supports, so they try to do it, and they may do it, but it's a lot harder, right? Yeah, it's more for for them. The, the point being that. We have to think about all these different factors that are involved. It's not just a particular policy or a particular law. It's also mm-hmm. attending to the multifaceted dimensions of, of, of what's what, what's necessary in a society. Mm-hmm. And, and, of course, that also includes how do you facilitate greater, uh, you know, family, you know, the things that can encourage family life rather than, than create dissonance of family life. Because statistically, mm-hmm. obviously, people who come from broken homes have a hard time. The people who who, are, who come from, mm-hmm. um, you know, homes where uh, there there's two parents, um, all those mm-hmm. things we have to think about. It's sure. not just one. Some people go, well, "We just need to make, it needs to be about supporting for families." It's like, well, it's not just supporting for families because there's still all these other things. Didn't you have a family unit where everything is great? Yeah, but they they. Don't they're in a terrible community with disinvestment. They don't have networks to help them to to get to places where people can take advantage of things. There's there's just all these things that get in the way. The whole point being, part of what needs to happen is attending to the public policy side of things. And so we should encourage that big picture as one version of the ways that we're thinking about how public policy okay. can be a way to love our neighbors. Because questions of race are one thing among many other things yeah. that, that we need to address. Yeah. Man, I have so many other questions, but I really want to make sure we do. I want to get to um, more of a race-specific conversation. In, in particular, because I, I, I got you for another 10 minutes here. Um, uh, you contributed to a book, Aliens in, in the Promised Land, Why Minority Leadership is Overlooked in White Christian Churches and Institutions. Um, provocative and brilliant title. And this, this is almost 10 years ago. And I know you've written on it since then, even being a black mm-hmm. leader in largely white spaces. Um, mm-hmm. I don't even know what direction you want to go here. Maybe that latter part, maybe on a mm-hmm. testimony standpoint, like what have you um, <laughs> learned slash been frustrated with slash sure. want to uh, speak into being a sure. minority leader in largely white spaces? And is that the right way to even frame it? Do you feel like that? I mean, is that... Uh, there's lots of ways. To fr- that, we'll go with that. That's <laughs> okay. fine. Um, I think the first thing I always like to say to this is that part of things people need to understand with me is that I am very culturally fluid. Remember, I mean, I mentioned Iron Maiden. I know. <laughs> so, uh, I mean, I mean, now also, you know, I, I like the Temptations. I grew up in a town, a home playing Motown. Yeah. Uh. Listening to the Jackson Five, all that, uh, but you know, my first concert was Kiss in 1977. So, uh, so you know, I've seen more rock concerts than I've seen R&B concerts. Yeah. But, uh, but I like most forms of music. Um, that's another conversation. But, um, I think 
because I'm culturally fluent to inhabit lots of spaces comfortably without um, being uncomfortable in ways that somebody who isn't as culturally fluid mm-hmm. or hasn't been in as many different cultural spaces as I've been in, it may, it may be harder for them. So mm-hmm. I, I, I have to qualify that because some people say, you're in your 23rd year at Wheat. Man, I mean, like, how do you do it? I'm like, I'm all right. <laughs> in fact, some of my wife and our kids, we joke, yeah, we, well, I mean, we have like all these white friends, you know, it's just kind of <laughs> our world, right? But but we don't think for a moment that that's like, that we're not, we're also aware of like the realities about, yeah. <laughs> you know, we're talking about, talking about race all the time. Yeah. Um, so I think one of the biggest things to recognize is that whatever, it's, in terms of minorities being in evangelical spaces, first of all, in terms of leadership, you have to recognize that, and again, this is part of, I think, going back to the legacies of, you know, uh, antagonizing, Af- flourishing of minorities. When you antagonize that flourishing, you get in the way of creating some huge pipeline of all these people that can be in leadership positions. So that number is growing, but it's right. still a small number. So, you know, so if somebody gets a PhD or whatever, so sometimes there's three or four people that want to hire you rather than one person that wants to hire you. So, so the point being is that you have a numbers issue to begin with. Mm-hmm. Uh, then I think you also have the fact that at least when it comes to what I teach in theology, biblical studies, et cetera, at least in, I think in the context, if people, especially people come up in African-American churches, if you show interest in religious things, a lot of people tend to get, you know, um, oriented towards pastoral ministry rather than to the academy. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's that piece. Um, then there's the fact that um, when people, some people, when it comes to them being in the academy, they, there's not, for some people, when they get there, um, the things that would be helpful for people to to flourish in those spaces. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't think it's always intentional. I just think it's sometimes it's harder for people to inhabit this world where you might be the only one or, mm-hmm. or, or one of a few people. And, um, and sometimes people, you know, pe- people need other things that are just like things that contribute to your general well being. And if you're not having those things, mm-hmm. um, I think the assumption could be, Oh, look, you're in this space, you got this job, you got the salary. Um, what, what, what else could you need? It's like, well, well, a lot of the other things you're taking for granted probably about things that that sort of give you a sense of comfort because you're because they're used to inhabiting that world yeah so i think you have to think about here i'll talk about in terms of what the aspiration should be ideally the point what institutions need ought to be able to do is to ask the question how do we really make our places home for everyone yeah and how are we helping people to understand that no you're home here, not just because you're a contributor, but there are also things that makes you feel like it's your home. Hmm. And depending on who people are, I mean, that, 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 there's all kinds of things that, that could mean. But I think w- when you feel like you're at home, you're just comfortable. Hmm. And so uh, how, do we, how, do we, how do we do that? I think it just takes work to, to, to learn how to do that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the thing is that there's just not one way that that is, because if you take a survey of people, OK, well, what do you need? You're probably you might get as many different <laughs> yeah. suggestions as people. Well, so I, I think there needs to be attentiveness to that. OK. Um, but I think also when it comes to the numbers. Um, you know, I, I invite any of any listeners to go look up all the different universities, colleges, seminaries, et cetera, and then find all the African-American PhDs. Hmm. And the point is, is that it's not that there's a market saturation when it comes to that. <laughs> yeah. no. And, and why is that? Why? Because in the, well, I, think, been... I think part of it is it's the legacy of, I mean, you know, we're only like 56, 57 yeah. years since the civil rights acts. Hmm. So, um, you know, it's, it's, it, it takes a, a long time to, to, I mean, to build, to build that. And then for people to want to participate in that. 
Okay. I mean, because if you think about it, just among white people, okay, what percentage of white people are PhDs? Not a whole lot. (laughs) Right. So if you have a minority community, African Americans are maybe about twenty percent of the population. Okay, one percent of that population. Yeah. And you have all these institutions, right? Most of which are, you know, white institutions. Yeah. Um, I mean, because if you think about the number of people that are gonna be at HBCUs, okay. Then if you if you if you if you bracket those people out, then you get everybody else in all these other institutions. Even just the numbers, if it's one percent of the people, it's going to be hard to get somebody that's in every one of those institutions. And then the institution itself has to be a place that um, isn't an old boys club. Yeah, just like it's like like a woman who's in political science or the hard sciences, etc. No matter what her race is, sometimes. Those are largely male-dominated professions, irrespective of race. And okay, well, what? So, what does it take for that person to flourish there? Huh. Sometimes, because the people there are really committed to it. Other times, there are people who've been around for a while, or people who think that they've competed with these people and they don't want to lose a job to a woman, or or to anybody that's not them. Um, that person may have to deal with suspicion and always feeling like you have to prove yourself and mm-hmm. all this type of stuff. So they, like, they, they may not want to be in that environment. It's not yeah. that they wouldn't be let into that environment on the hiring side. Of course they would be. They might even be preferred yeah. Yeah. for diversity's sake, but would they want to enter into that? <laughs> well, I, I, I think well, here's what I say about that is that I think there are people, more people now who asked that question yeah. than maybe 20 years ago. Would yeah. Have asked that question. Yeah. yeah. The fact is, and a part of that's because, you know, social media does a lot of great things. Uh, one of the things it does is it, people communicate their distresses about things. And so I think people are discovering more people being willing to say how hard it is to be the only one, et cetera, sure. yeah. uh, or to be one of a few. And 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 so I think there, at least from a Christian point of view, um, if for a person who's in any discipline, any kind of situation, one of the questions certainly should be, I mean, is, is this part of your vocation and dealing with that challenge is part of your vocation? Yeah. For some people, um, maybe it's it's that's probably not part of their vocation, and they, they thought it was. It's better to um, be at a different institution, whether it's an HBCU or or, or another school, but by, but a particular place that they thought was great isn't. Like I think anybody, no matter what your race is, that wants to be in an Ivy League school. My question to them is: So are you are you really good at academic publishing? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because. If you want to stay there, <laughs> you will be good at academic publishing. Yeah. Just, just look up the requirements for tenure at Harvard or Yale or something. Oh, or it's Stanford. Crazy. Yeah, it's insane. It's, I mean, the, you know, the, the, there is that phrase, publish or perish. So, yeah, yeah. And the point being, not, obviously people do it, but is that what you want? Is And is that when you're thinking about your academic career, that's the thing you want to do? Yeah. So, so, so the vocation question itself is. Yeah. Vincent, I, I want to respect your time. You got a meeting in a couple minutes. So thank you so much. I have so many other questions. I'm like writing them down and didn't get a chance to ask them, which means I'll have to have you back on. But thanks so much for giving us uh, your time and many blessings to you and uh, the fine people over at uh, your historic Wheaton uh, institution. <laughs> <laughs> All right. God bless. All right.